We read portions of the plagues today, so we're really looking at five chapters, Exodus 7 through 11. And if we were to read all those scripture verses, we would be here a while. So we tried to kind of read a selection, and we're going to look at a selection, jump around a little bit, but I hope that you can follow me. And I encourage you to go home after the service or sometime this week before a small group and read through the passages. Uh, it's an oh, amazing story. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father God, I come here to preach this message as a fallen human being. Uh, and yet you've uh, decided to, to speak through your word through me. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would just enable me to do that, that you would uh, open up the ears of everyone here, and that they're also fallen human beings, and that you would allow them to hear from you through your word. Uh, we love you, Jesus. We, we want your Holy Spirit to speak to us. We want God to speak to us. And I pray that that happens right now. Uh, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So have you ever wondered what it would be like uh, to meet uh, a childhood hero or maybe someone that you admire today? I know maybe, maybe a name pops into your, 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 your brain, maybe uh, something uh, you're thinking of that childhood hero or that person that you admire. Like what would it be like to shake the hand of Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin, those uh, first men to walk on the moon? Or what would it be like to hug Rosa Parks or, or Martin Luther King Jr., people that, that stared racism in the face and, and overcame it? Maybe some of you are uh, interested in like the celebrity culture and you just want to meet uh, like a famous movie star like uh, Aubrey Hepburn or George Clooney or Chris Pratt. I'd like to meet Chris Pratt. Uh, but I know that there's a lot of people that might be interested in meeting some of those older movie stars. I'd also like to meet some celebrity chefs if they'd be willing to cook me dinner, uh, like Rachel Ray or Gordon Ramsay. A student at the University of Texas, Austin, got to meet Bill Gates. Now, Bill Gates is one of the most famous people in the world, and he and uh, Melinda Gates, they have a foundation, and they don donated $30 million to this school to build a new computer science complex, and she was the student that was chosen to give Bill Gates a tour of this new complex that he had helped pay for. And as you can imagine, she was very nervous. Now, she wrote a little blog about it. Her name is Ellen Lee, and she was a computer science major at the school. And she was very, very nervous. She was kind of pacing. She practiced the two days leading up to it, uh, almost kind of shaky. And turns out, Bill Gates uh, and his entourage, they arrived early because that's pretty typical for him. And she, you know, nervous as can be, but he, he, as, as she saw him walking up, she, she went up to him, introduced herself, put out her hand and said, hi, I'm Ellen. And his response was, hi, I'm Bill. <laughs> and in that moment, she realized, oh, this is just a normal person. And she was able to calm down and give him a pretty interesting tour. In her words, she said, Mr. Gates nodded intently and was genuinely interested in what I was saying, or at least seemed to be, and was just overall very chill. He was particularly excited when I mentioned that the labs were open 24-7. So that gets a computer nerd uh, excited. This is a picture of that first meeting where Ellen met Bill Gates and gave him a tour. 
Now, maybe you all have that person, the kind of the, 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 the figure that I'd like to meet to shake hands uh, is Timothy Keller. He's a church planter. He's an author. He's the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. And last year, I actually got to meet his wife, Kathy Keller. Uh, he was speaking up at Gordon-Conwell. And I didn't get to meet him, but he, he did like literally walk like right past me. So I could have I reached out just giving him a hug. But I decided I didn't want his first meeting me to be quite that aggressive. I'd rather we go out to dinner in a bookstore, you know, and have a, have a nice time. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to meet God? What is it like to meet God? These are all people that, you know, in our time seem important, but God's from eternity past. <laughs> he created all things. He is really important. What would it be like to meet God? Now, Moses... We read a couple weeks ago, he met God. He met God, and God introduced himself as the great I am. He said, I am who I am. In other words, I will be who I will be. In Exodus, whenever it talks about the Lord, it's talking about God's special name, God's covenantal name, Yahweh. It's a special name that God gives to his people that they can relate to him and know him through. God introduces himself as I am who I am, as Yahweh. So when I refer to God in this sermon, I am not referring to a kind of a deity, a general sort of abstract sense of God, a higher power, a greater light. I am referring to the God of the Bible. I am referring to Yahweh. I am referring to the God of Christianity, to the God of scriptures. And I want to know, what would it be like to meet that God? What would it be like to meet him? Well, Exodus 7 through 11 is a, is a story of people meeting God. The plagues of Egypt, their purpose, they have this purpose to introduce people to God. And maybe that seems a bit confusing at first. We don't normally think about the plagues as an introduction, but we're going to see today that they are. They're an introduction to who God is. That's their purpose. And I want us to look at the purpose today, that this this purpose, this introduction can be broken down into three parts. Purpose number one. God introduces himself as Savior and Judge. In the bulletin, there's a, a place where you can take notes and you can fill in. I invite you to look at that. God God introduces himself as Savior and Judge. Now Moses has already gone to Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh's the king of Egypt. Moses has already gone to him to tell him, let the people go. And Pharaoh did not respond well. (laughs) He increased the workload. He he got mad. And this was very uh, frustrating to Moses, to the Israelites. Very uh, difficult thing to go through. And now God tells him again in chapter 7 to take his staff and to go once again to Pharaoh and to throw his staff down. It becomes a cobra, and this cobra eats the the magician's false cobras, the the cobras that they bring about. And I want to stop for a moment uh, and and think about the staff. If you read the, the Scripture passage, it really seems that God emphasizes Moses, take this staff. Take this this shepherd's staff with you as you go to to Pharaoh. And this really introduces the theme of God as a savior and a judge. Now, I brought today uh, the closest thing I have to a shepherd's staff, which is a cane. (laughs) Now, this is probably uh, 
a shepherd-sized staff for someone like Sawyer or Finley. Uh, not for me, but uh, I want us to look at it for a moment, right? It has a couple different parts to it. It has a straight end, right, kind of a straight rod, and then it has the curved end at the top, which is called a shepherd's crook. And each, each part is for, does a unique job. So the first part is for hitting uh, wolves or sheep or bad congregants. And the second part is for pulling, I'm just kidding, uh, the, the second part is for pulling sheep out of like the mud or, or water. So you see there's two aspects to a shepherd's t- staff. There's, there's a side of judgment and there's a side of salvation, of, of rescue, and so when God says, take your, your, uh, your shepherd's staff, Moses, he's saying, you're going to have a, have a theme of judgment. You're going to have a theme of salvation. This is going to be the message that you're taking to them. And what does God do? God introduces himself as a savior to the Israelites, to the Hebrew people. Now, Israel has been in a foreign land for 400 years. And I don't know about you, but when, uh, you know, I grew up in Colorado, and I kind of forget, well, what's, what's Colorado like, or, or kind of the things that happen to me in Colorado. Over time, uh, space and distance, you begin to forget things, don't you? And so God has to reintroduce himself to the nation of Israel, to his people that have been in a foreign land, hundreds of miles away from their home, homeland. Exodus 6, 7 really tells us this. It says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. God is introducing himself as a savior God, as a deliverer, a rescuer. He does this by sending plagues, by sending ten plagues. Water, uh, turning the Nile into blood, uh, the frogs, the lice, the flies, and more. And in half these plagues, something really interesting happens. And and five of these plagues, uh, they come upon the Israelites differently than they come upon the nation of Egypt. In the fourth plague, Moses tells Pharaoh this. So God says to Moses to tell Pharaoh this. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day... I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. See, God is reintroducing himself as a savior God in intangible, real ways that the people of Israel uh, can experience. Maybe some of you have seen uh, the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. There is a scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark where the bad guy is arguing with Indiana Jones. He's in a white suit. He's kind of dressed up. He's kind of classy. And about halfway through the shot, a fly comes and lands on his cheek. And it crawls up into his mouth and disappears. And he just keeps on going. I did a little research, and apparently that was a little bit of movie magic. There was a fly, but then Steven Spielberg cut the frames that that showed it fly away because he wanted to kind of give that idea of this, here's this bad guy, it's kind of funny, a fly flies into his mouth and he eats it and keeps on going. 
But that's kind of the, the feeling, the experience, but like 10 times worse that the Egyptians would have been experiencing. Flies in their hair covering the ground. I, I can't stand like one fly. I have to chase it around with the swatter. And it says it just covers the ground. It covers, I'm sure it got on them and in their hair and in their, their ears and their nose and just in their mouth in places they didn't want it to go. And God says, I'm going to save the Israelites from that. They don't have to experience that, that awful uh, judgment because I am their Savior. Now, God doesn't save the Israelites from every plague. They still have to deal with the plagues of frogs and gnats. They still have to deal with the whole Nile being turned into blood. But for some of the really bad ones, God does spare them for the, the plague of the livestock. It says the, the cattle, the, the, the camels, the, the livestock of Egypt perish, but not those of the Israelites. What is God doing? God is saying, I'm saving my people, those that belong to me. When God sends thunder, hail, and flashing lightning like fire down on the land, he doesn't do it on the land of Goshen where the Israelites are. He does it on the land of Egypt. And when God covers the land in darkness... The, the Bible describes it as darkness, so dark you can feel it. He sends light for the Israelites. They can see. See, God is demonstrating that, that his salvation belongs to any who belong to him. At Lorraine Caverns in Virginia, maybe you've been on uh, one of those cave tours. Well, sometimes in cave tours, at least in this one, uh, the tour guide at one point will turn off the lights, Right? What's that like when the lights go off and there's absolutely no light? You're in the earth. It's dark. It's creepy. You hope the, the tour guide doesn't leave. You hope your parents don't run away. It's darkness you can feel. And this is the kind of darkness that God sent on the land of Egypt, but not on his people because he's saving his people. He's delivering those that belong to him. <laughs> The good news of Christianity is that those who belong to Jesus, those who belong to God, although they might experience hardship and suffering in this life, you might even have the, the lights turned off on you in a cave, spiritually you will never walk in darkness. You will always have the light of Christ Jesus. Do you walk in light or do you walk in darkness? I'm going to come back to the theme of Jesus and, and, and what he does for us. But I want you to think about that. Do you, is your life shrouded in this darkness or is it shrouded in light? The Egyptians, they walked in darkness very literally but also spiritually. God introduces himself to the Israelites as a savior, but he introduces himself to the Egyptians as a judge. He introduces himself as a judge to this foreign people, to the people that aren't willing to trust him, to people that reject him over and over and over again. God sends darkness. Their minds are literally darkened. And so they can only relate to God as a judge, not as a savior. Exodus chapter 7, verse 4 and 5 say this. It says, then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. 
See, God is coming before them as a judge. God uses these plagues, these 10 plagues, to demonstrate what God's judgment looks like. And friends, like, it's a scary thing. You don't want to be judged by God. You don't want to experience his punishment, his rod. You want to experience his grace, his salvation. His judgment is like social. He, he, he keeps people from relating to each other. They have boils. He, 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 uh, he kills the firstborn at the end. It's economic as he destroys like the Nile, their, their system of trade. It's complete. It's total. And that's really what God's judgment is is in this life or the next. Now, the interesting thing is that although God's judgment is real and it's big, it's also fair. It's actually just. God is not being unfair towards the Egyptians. Uh, For example, in the seventh plague, God sends hail on Egypt. Exodus 9, 8 says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. And this, this, this soot uh, becomes boils. Remember how Pharaoh forced the Israelites to bake bricks? Notice that the punishment, as Tim Chester writes, it fits the crime. The punishment fits the crime. It comes back around. The pharaohs, the Egyptians, they enslaved the people for 400 years, forcing them to, to, to do hard manual labor using these sorts of ovens to build their cities. And God's saying, this is my justice. My justice is served. Even the last plague, the plague that we're really going to experience more next week with the firstborns dying, even that is just. Because what did the previous pharaoh do? He threw the boys, the little baby Hebrew boys, into the Nile. And now notice that it's God who's the one who's dispensing justice, isn't it? It's not the Hebrews. They don't rise up in revolt. They don't go to war. It's God's justice, and we can trust that God's justice is pure. And there's even elements of grace in it. Because, yes, God is introducing himself as a judge, but he's also giving them a chance to repent, He's giving the Egyptians a chance to say, we're sorry to change our ways, to come and worship Yahweh, to come and worship the one true God. In fact, when when Moses, he warns the leaders, he warns Pharaoh and his magicians in his court that the livestock are going to die. And he says, take your livestock in from the fields with the hail. The hail is going to come, it's going to kill your livestock, well then... Bring your livestock in. And it says some of them believed. They feared God. They feared the word of Moses, and they brought them in. That's an opportunity for them to repent, to say, we're sorry. In fact, Pharaoh even has opportunities to repent. His heart hardens. He chooses not to. But it sure seems like he does. Verse 27 and verse 28 of chapter 9 says, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. He says, This time I have sinned. He said to them, The Lord is in the right And I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Now, is Pharaoh's repentance true repentance? We can test to see if repentance, if coming before God and saying, I'm sorry, is true, if it lasts. (laughs) 
Pharaoh's repentance does not last. Uh, Moses goes out, he prays, the hail stops. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he, he wouldn't let the Israelites go. I have a question that I want to ask as we're talking about God as a Savior and a judge. Is God your Savior, or do you relate to God as your judge? How can we know if God is my Savior or if God is my judge? Well, it all comes down to repentance. It comes down to whether or not you have come before God and said, God, I'm a broken sinner. If left to my natural state, I will always harden my heart, won't I? I will always say, God, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to always harden myself, and I am always going to disobey. I'm going to enjoy my sin. But we can come before God and we can say, God, we're sorry. We repent. Repentance means like to turn around, to, to change direction. It doesn't mean saying I'm sorry or, or praying just like a Christian prayer and continuing in your sin. That is not repentance. Repentance is changing, walking in a new way of life. And that's what we do as Christians, right? We, we, we don't live perfectly, but we say, God, we're sorry. Would your Holy Spirit change me from the inside out? Would you come and renew me? Because I can't even do this in my own power. I need your help. If you don't know God as your Savior, there is incredibly good news. The whole Bible is, is an offering. It's a message of God saying, come and know me as your Savior. Come and know me in a way that's loving and kind. You don't have to experience my judgments. You don't have to experience my plagues. Last uh, Friday, yeah, it was last Friday, we watched The Prince of Egypt. And if you haven't seen that movie, come, come uh, talk to me after the service, and I can try to figure out how to lend you the copy that I have at some point. Uh, but it's a wonderful movie, and in The Prince of Egypt, all these plagues are coming down on Egypt. And you see, like the Egyptians, they're, they're suffering, they're scared. But at the end, as the, as the Israelites begin to leave, something happens. Got a screenshot. Two Egyptian soldiers drop their weapons, and they go with the Israelites. In fact, you see, you see them pop up several more times. You see them at the Red Sea. You can kind of see it. It's a little dark, but they're helping the Israelites pass through the Red Sea. And then they show up again in the background on the other side of the Red Sea. And we don't know for sure. Scripture doesn't tell us if Egyptians repented. But they had the opportunity and we do see through the story of the scriptures that they do come to know Jesus. Egyptians do. None of us are born saved. None of us are born as the people of God. Not a single one of us. Even if you grow up in the church, you're not born a Christian. See, we're all like these two Egyptians. We all at some point have to make a decision. Are we going to repent and put our faith in Jesus? And when we do, we join the people of God. We join a whole, a whole family of people that know God and that love God, just like these two Egyptians. Is God your Savior or is he your judge? The good news, the gospel, is that he can be your Savior. So the purpose of plague number one is that God introduces himself as Savior and Judge. The second purpose is that God introduces himself as the one true God. So when you first read the story 
of God sending the plagues on Egypt, they seem kind of random. But actually, in reality, they're not random at all. God is actually doing something kind of in heaven that's reflected on earth. He is, he is m- making war, really. He's making this kind of uh, spiritual war against the false gods, the false go- idols, the false, really, demons of Egypt. And we actually see this uh, told to us in Scripture. Exodus 12, verse 12 says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. There's another passage in Numbers that talks about God making war on the false gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Now, a couple weeks ago, I said that God's true battle is not just against Pharaoh. You might remember the sign of the Uraeus on Pharaoh's crown. A Uraeus is a cobra. And I made the connection between Pharaoh really representing Satan, the serpent, in the Garden of Eden. And that being kind of the true conflict between God and the serpent. Uh, It's expressed kind of in the human everyday in the terms. Well, here we see in the plagues, we see God making war against each one of Pharaoh's gods. In fact, God counters a variety of gods. We're going to focus on a few of them. But God counters the false gods that claim to give life. This first picture on the left here is a, a kind of a, a picture on a wall of, of the Egyptian god Osiris. Now, we read the first plague tonight, which is uh, Moses turning the Nile into blood. Osiris was the god of the Nile. His, his skin's like green and black to stand for uh, life, death, resurrection, Uh, He was kind of this God who was said to have control over all sorts of life. And the Nile was his bloodstream in their mythology. And so when God comes in and turns the whole Nile to blood, he's saying, I'm God. (laughs) Osiris is not. Osiris can't produce life out of death. Osiris can't bring resurrection. I do. I'm the one who produces life out of death, not Osiris. There is no other resurrection God but the God of the Bible. And yet, in our everyday lives, we live differently sometimes, don't we? See, what are, the, what are those things in our life, those idols, those false gods, where we look for happiness? <laughs> where, we, we, where we kind of fill up, where we look for our everyday life? If I were to ask you, you know, who's the God that gives you life, we would all say the God of the Bible, Yahweh, Jesus. But in reality, how do we fill ourselves up? How do we find our joy? How do we find our happiness? Where do you look for your life? Netflix just released a documentary on minimalism. And there was a very interesting passage uh, uh, where this author, he's kind of featured in the documentary, he reads his book on minimalism. Minimalism is kind of getting rid of all of your clutter, getting rid of a lot of things. But he tells the story of the month his mother died, and in that same month, his wife divorced him. So two really significant things happened to him. And one of the first things he did was go to Ikea. He writes, while even Rome was burning... There's somehow time for shopping at Ikea. See, when I moved out of the house earlier this week, trawling my many personal belongings in large bins and boxes and 50-gallon garbage bags, my first inclination was, of course, to purchase the things I still needed for my new place. 
you know, the basics, food, hygiene, products, a shower curtain, towels, a bed, and I'm, oh, I need a couch and a matching leather chair and a love seat and a lamp and a desk and a desk chair and another lamp for over there. And oh yeah, don't forget the sideboard that matches the desk and a dresser for the bedroom. And oh, I need a coffee table and a complete end tables and a TV stand for a TV that I have not yet bought. And now that I think about it, I'm going to want to my apartment to be my style, you know, my own motif. So I need certain decoratives to spruce up the decor. But wait, what is that exactly is my style? And do these stainless steel picture frames embody that particular style? What espresso maker defines me as a man? Does the fact that I'm even asking these questions mean I lack what makes me a man's man? I need a runner. I need all sorts of things. And oh, yes, I'm going to need dot, dot, dot. <laughs> this is how we walk through life, it, isn't it? It's easy. It's easy to buy into the idea that things, they can make me happy. They can give me life. That certain relationships or even certain decisions, that those things can fill me up. That they can give me joy in life. And I buy into that lie sometimes too. A lot of the time. The good news of what God is doing in this passage is that he is, he is showing people that these things, they never bring joy. They never bring true and lasting contentment. They never bring life. Only a relationship with God and these things aren't bad. I'm not saying you have to go out and live a minimalist lifestyle. But if you're searching in things for life, you're not going to find it. This week, uh, I'm, I'm uh, starting a, a seven-week class, one night a week for about an hour and a half, on Wednesday evenings from 7.30 to, uh, so 7 to 8.30, Life Explored. If you don't know Jesus or if you struggle with this, finding your happiness and your contentment in Christ, I know I do, come and join me for that class so that together we can wrestle with this and we can seek to find our happiness, our life in God and not those other things. You can sign up in the foyer after the service. God counters the false gods that claim to give life. He also counters the false gods that claim to give power. In the fifth plague, in the plague of the livestock, it's really interesting because God kills all the cattle. In Egyptian culture and their religion, a very advanced religion, they worshipped the god Apis. He was a bull, and he was a god that represented strength and fertility. In fact, in Egypt... The time isn't super clear, but perhaps around the time of the Exodus or shortly after, uh, there's actually a, a, a temple where they uh, built um, kind of sarcophaguses uh, and they housed the, the remains of bulls, of apis bulls. So there was always a living bull that was called kind of the apis bull that was that god that they held to be sacred. And in the 1850s, an archaeologist discovered 24 stone uh, sarcophaguses. And this is a picture of uh, one of them. It's housed at the Louvre. They each weigh 70 tons. So 24 sarcophaguses, 70 tons, housing the bull god of Egypt, a god that symbolizes strength, fertility. It's interesting that at Sinai, when the people begin to doubt God, where do they go? They go to Apis. They go to a cattle. They go to worship the God that symbolizes strength. 
See, we can search for strength in the wrong places, but they're always false. One of the reasons I liked the story of Ellen meeting Bill Gates is because we all kind of, you know, dream about what would it be like to meet Bill Gates and maybe he would write us a check and suddenly we'd be instantly wealthy. And what could we do with all that money? Well, we could certainly control our lives. We'd finally have power over those things that uh, we've had, we haven't had any power over yet. In our day, we don't really look for kind of this metaphorical power. We, we look for power in things like money or even relationships. And God wants to counter those in our lives. God wants to break those things down. He wants to hold the true source of power in our lives over our hearts. How can you know if things like money or relationships or other things like politics, how can you tell if those are things where you're searching for your true power, if you're consumed with them, if they're the things that you always think about, you're always thinking about those things. That's how we know that we're searching for power in the wrong place. God wants to hold that position of authority in our lives. God will counter the false claims of these false gods that claim to give power. And God also counters every person who thinks they are God. In the last two plagues, the plagues of darkness and the death of the firstborn son, God specifically targets Pharaoh. He targets Amun-Ra, who is the sun god. He's kind of the chief Egyptian god. And the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was Amun-Ra in the flesh. In other words, they believed Pharaoh was God in the flesh. It's pretty amazing. It's kind of... It's, it's this very uh, interesting thing. Uh, Ramses II, this is a picture of a temple that he built. And he built this temple where the sun would like, shine into this temple. And twice a year, it would shine on his face. So there's, he's there, Amun-Ra, and there's another god. There's three gods uh, kind of pictured there. And it shines on his face two times a year, once on his birthday and once on his coronation day. It's, it's an engineering marvel. See, Pharaoh thought he was pretty important, didn't he? (laughs) He believed that he was God, that he was kind of the son in the flesh. The God of the Bible says, I'm not going to have any of that. I'm going to shut off the lights. You believe that your son is God in the flesh? Your son is going to die because I am the true God. Now, don't we all kind of live sometimes this way where we think we're the God of our lives? (laughs) We live, you know, when we, when we search for power or life and those other things, we're defining our own reality, right? We're living our way instead of God's way. And there are things that we do in our life that we know that our conscience tells us that you shouldn't be doing this thing. This is a wrong thing. This is sin. But we continue in those things. And when we do that, what are we claiming? We're claiming that we're God. We're climbing up onto his throne. And we're saying we're in charge. And praise God, we have a God that loves us enough to dismantle us, to take us down a notch, to show that we are not God, and we never will be. God counters every person who thinks they're God. The purpose, number three, is that God introduces himself to all the nations. All throughout this story, God is introducing himself to Israel, to Egypt, but he also wants to introduce himself to the whole world. 
In Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, God says to Pharaoh, But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, God wants the Israelites to know who he is. He wants the Egyptians to know who he is. He wants the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, the New Englanders, the Africans, the Chinese. He wants every person on earth to know who he is. In fact, when the Israelites get to the promised land, that's kind of the whole purpose of the Exodus, they meet a prostitute named Rahab. And she says, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water at the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. See, then Yahweh knows that he's the one true God, and so he wants everyone to know about him. So everyone has to make that decision. Am I going to relate to God as a savior or as a judge? And it's a shame most people choose to relate to the one true God as a judge. But the plagues are really an act of grace, saying that I am who I am. I, I am greater than everything else. These plagues, they still introduce us to Jesus, uh, to God today. <laughs> and it's through Jesus. So I believe every scripture passage, every story in the Bible, it ultimately whispers the name of Christ Jesus. It points forward to him. These plagues point forward to Jesus. If you look at the life of Christ in the New Testament, what do you see? Moses, for his very first kind of big miracle, he turns the Nile into blood. What does Jesus do for his miracle? He turns water into wine. Moses' miracle created death, but what does Jesus' miracle do? It creates life. Uh, Moses threw soot in the air and it turned into boils, boils that broke out all over people's bodies and skin. And what did Jesus do as he was heading towards the cross, he was willing to take our punishment for our sin by being scourged, by his flesh being ripped apart for you and for me. He was willing to experience our plague that we deserve. See, the plagues, they tell us the gospel. Gospel means good news. Tim Chester writes again, he says, At the cross, the plagues fell on Jesus, the Son of God. Think about that for a moment. You and I were all born in sin, and we all deserve all ten of those plagues to fall on us. We deserve to suffer and to die because we have rejected God in our sin. And the Bible tells us that those plagues at the cross, they fall on Jesus. The judgment of God falls on Jesus. See, God is a judge, but he judges himself. <laughs> he judges his son so that we can be saved. Moses stretched out his hand and darkness descended on the land for three days. Jesus stretched out both of his hands and darkness fell on him for three hours. And then he descended into the earth, into the heart of darkness, so that you and I can live in light. So that we can be raised with Christ at the last day. The plagues fell on Jesus so that God's grace falls on me. Moses warned Pharaoh that his firstborn son would die if he didn't let God's people go. His firstborn son, his, his child, born in sin, but kind of this innocent figure. Jesus is the son of God who was perfectly innocent. He was the firstborn son of God, God's unique son. And what did he do? He went willingly to the cross to die on our behalf so that he could rise again, ascend into heaven, and say, let my people go. The plagues fell on Jesus so that God's grace falls on me. If you want to meet God, you have to meet Jesus. If you want to meet God, you have to meet Christ. The plagues fell on Jesus so that God's grace falls on me. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for sending those plagues on Christ so that I do not have to experience them. Thank you for introducing us to you through these plagues and through Christ. I pray for the offering, Lord. Would it be an act of worship? Would we give sacrificially as we remember just how much Christ has sacrificed for us? And would this church be a good steward of the money that it receives? Would we use it to proclaim the name of Yahweh, the, the name of Christ Jesus to all the nations? It's in his name we pray. Amen.